0: his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come to your word, I ask that you would help us to grasp something of the honorable position that you have, by your grace, placed us in. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that we are your people and that we are a holy, spiritual nation we are set apart for you and for your service. Father, I pray that you would motivate us this morning to fulfill our purpose as a holy nation. Our purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of you among the nations. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to those things. I pray that we would behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, I pray that as your word goes forth, that it would accomplish its purpose. Father, you've promised that, and so I ask that you would do exactly as you promised, and that your word would impact hearts of brothers and sisters who are gathered here worshiping you this morning. Father, I I pray the same for our brothers and sisters at the Word of Grace Church, and for Pastor Alexi. Father, I pray that the word would be preached boldly and clearly from that pulpit this morning as they gather together to worship. And Father, I pray that you would bring spiritual renewal to your people there and that many would come to know you through their ministry. And Father, we lift up our missionary Beatrice. Father, we thank you that you brought her home safely from her time of ministry in Italy. Father, we pray that you would give her strength as she uh, reintegrates into life in the U.S. We pray that you'd give her wisdom and direction for work and ministry as she settles in. And Father, I pray uh, lastly for me. I pray that You would strengthen me. I pray that You would give me boldness. And Father, I pray that my words would be clear and helpful and only in accord with Your Word. So Father, we ask all of those things, and we ask that You would do them for Your glory this morning. In the name of Your Son, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. One of the most jarring images in the Old Testament of God's covenant relationship with His people comes from the life of the prophet Hosea in the second half of the 8th century before Christ. Israel had forsaken the Lord for the worship of Baal. Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility. Israel had defiled themselves and they had polluted the land With their wickedness. According to Hosea, there was widespread swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. It sounds like the U.S. today. And he even reports cult prostitution. Hosea's mission was to expose Israel's covenant breaking betrayal of God and to call the nation to repentance. So to put their wickedness and his love on vivid display, God commanded Hosea to marry and to have children with an adulterous woman. He would experience something of the betrayal Israel had committed against their God. The woman he married was Gomer. And when Gomer had given birth to her second child, the Lord said to Hosea, call her name No mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. No mercy. That is God's righteous judgment against Israel for her unfaithfulness, for committing adultery against him, her loving husband. And when Gomer had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. It is a depressing picture, but it's not the end of the story. In chapter 2, Hosea speaks a word from the Lord about a new covenant that he would cut with his people. And speaking to the very ones who had betrayed him, he says these words, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What a marvel. God pours out his love. And declares a people to be his own. A people who he'd previously declared that because of their unfaithfulness to him, they were not his people. It is a prophetic picture. And as you'll see, it has much to do with this morning's text. First, though, let's, let's get our bearings. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me point out something that many of you have already noticed. It's come up every time we've spoken about an imperative or a command. After rehearsing some gospel truths in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, which which we're going to read every Sunday, after rehearsing those gospel truths, Peter gives a series of instructions for how these Christians are to live throughout their time in exile. And thus far, he's really only given five instructions. But take a look at the nature of his instructions. At least four of the five are focused on the heart. That is, they are focused on the affections of your heart. Chapter 1, verse 13, "'Set your hope fully on the grace that is to come.'" Hope is an affection of the heart. Chapter 1, verse 17, conduct yourself with fear. That is in the fear of the Lord. Fear is an affection of your heart. Chapter 1, verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love is the capstone affection of the heart. In chapter 2, verse 2, long or crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word. Again, longing is an affection, a strong desire of the heart. So, four of Peter's five instructions thus far target your heart. It's true they also demand a change in behavior, but they are not less than a demand upon your heart. The only exception is the instruction in chapter 1 verse 15 to be holy. The holy affections are probably included there, but The instruction is to be holy in all your conduct. I love what Peter's doing here. He's not aiming merely for behavioral change. He's not looking to turn these exiles into externally well-behaved, productive members of the Roman society. He's aiming for their heart. And he calls them to hope, to fear, to love earnestly, and to long things that are not in your immediate control. So those kinds of imperatives, as we come across them in Scripture, force us to depend upon God's grace. What Christ did on the cross to secure a new heart for you, to put a new spirit within you and to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Because if the tree is good, it will bear good fruit. And Peter's banking on that truth. It's also why I've repeated the words of Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Edwards so many times in this series. All true Christian grace tends to holy practice. All true Christian grace tends to holy practice. Let's move to our text. In verses 7 and 8, which Josh preached last week, Peter set up a contrast between honoring and stumbling. He says, for you who believe, there's honor. For those who don't believe, there's a stumbling. Then Peter starts verse 9 with, but you. In other words, there are those who stumble in unbelief, But for you, there is honor. And Peter proceeds to tell them about this honor. And he does that by taking four Old Covenant titles and applying them to Israel. That applied to Israel and applying them with no apology to the New Testament church, the Israel of God. Peter is reminding these exiles of who they are. That is, who they are in Christ Theirs, he says, is an honorable estate. And Peter wants these truths to encourage them and to fortify them in their suffering. He's saying, never forget who you are in Christ. There is an unfathomable honor in that. There is an honor for which it is worth being rejected by society. There's an honor for which it is worth enduring slander. There is an honor for which it is worth standing firm when the world is pressuring you to return to the adultery of your, with your pagan gods. Peter's focus here is on the church. The church as a whole and less on individual believers. He says that these high titles, high titles is what Calvin called these, these high titles belong to you. Never forget them. Let them be a help to you in your time of exile. Now, here's the first of the four high titles. I'm going to run through them quickly and then make a comment or two about how to apply them. Verse 9, you are a chosen race. Now, this is the fourth time Peter has used the word chosen Twice he used it to describe Christ, chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, and twice he uses it to describe the exiles. Chapter 1, verse 1, he calls them elect exiles. That's the same word, chosen exiles. And then here in chapter 2, verse 9, the root of this title, though, comes from God's choosing of Israel. Listen to Moses. Just before the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, he said, The Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Israel was God's chosen people. We see it in this passage and we see it throughout the Old Testament. But what Peter does is he takes that Old Covenant title and he applies it to the New Testament church and he pairs the word chosen with the word race. You are a chosen race and pay attention to how Peter is using that word. The word translated race has a range of meanings. It can mean kind as in different kinds of fish. We see that in Mark 13. It can mean family. We see that in Acts 4 and Acts 7. It can mean native. We see that in Acts 7. What's clear about how Peter is using it is that he is not referring to ethnicity, skin color, or culture. That's the way we tend to think of race. We know Peter isn't using it that way. Because the church is composed of all ethnicities, all skin colors and cultures. The blood of Christ ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So this is not about those superficial differences between humans. This race, this chosen race is a spiritual race and it is defined by belief. In other words, it is not a race based upon physical lineage. Rather, it is based upon spiritual lineage. It is a race of people who have been born again as sons of the living God. You then, as the church, are the chosen race Peter is talking about. Think think of that. You are a chosen race. As Matthew Henry said, you are one family, a sort and species of people distinct from the common world. You are of another spirit, principle, and practice, which you could never be if you were not chosen in Christ to be such, and then set apart by His Spirit. Henry's referring there to Ephesians 1.4, which says that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before Him. So, you are a chosen race. High title number two, you are a royal priesthood. Peter's the only biblical author to use this title for New Testament believers. If you remember last week's text, Peter already said that these exiles were holy Or a holy priesthood. And now he adds to that picture, your priesthood, he says, is royal. Peter takes this high title from Exodus chapter 19, where God declares that Israel shall be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's not how we normally think of the priesthood, do we? We think of typically of Aaron and his sons and their role in temple services and sacrifices. Yet here we see the entire nation was meant to be a kingdom of priests. One scholar explains it like this. Although Aaron and his sons played a special priestly role within this covenant people, the royal priesthood of the holy nation in Exodus 19 is in relation to the rest of the earth. Just as Aaron and his sons mediate between Israel and God, the entire nation of Israel was to play a mediating role between God and the nations. D.A. Carson agrees with that and connects it directly to evangelism, as you might imagine. He says that evangelism is part of our priestly role as New Testament believers. He says, you mediate the grace of God to others... In your prayers and petitions, you pray for those who are outside, that God might open their eyes, that the Spirit of God might convict them of their sin, that they might repent and turn and trust the living God. This is part of your priestly ministry. Every time you pray for others, you are engaging in this priestly ministry. Every time you talk about the gospel, With an unconverted neighbor, you are exercising a priestly ministry of mediation. That said, there's another aspect of your priesthood that's even more foundational. You have been sanctified, you've been set apart for the service of God like priests. It is you, church, who now pursue holiness and purity. It is you, church, who have access to the most holy place. It is you who enter into the presence of God. You are priests of the Most High. He set you apart for His service. The royal nature of your priesthood then comes from the fact that you are sons of the living God. You are children of the King of Kings. Pastor Sam Storms does a marvelous job summarizing what this royal priesthood is and then connecting it with what we learned last week about the church as a temple. As priests of God, we are not merely passive, a passive building in which God dwells. We are also the active participants in worship. The priests brought the sacrifices into the tabernacle in the Old Testament. But now the tabernacle is replaced by the Christian church. The atoning altar is replaced by Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And the Levitical priests are replaced by all who believe in Christ. We are a royal priesthood because we have come under the dominion of the King of the universe. And just as Old Testament Israel. Was to mediate God's blessing to the surrounding nations, so the New Testament church, as priests of God, is to spread His grace and truth to a needy world. You are a royal priesthood. God set you apart to serve Him in purity and with a purpose, which will unfold in a moment. So, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, high title number three, you are a holy nation. Moses spoke this way of the Israelite community in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And we saw it in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and here it is, and a holy nation, a people or a nation holy to the Lord. Peter applies that title to you, the church. A few weeks ago, we spent most of the sermon on what it means to be holy, so I'm not going to belabor the point here, except to say that the idea of holiness is twofold. One, it is the idea of being set apart. And two, it involves a moral purity. Being set apart is like uh, a rule that Tracy has in our kitchen. There are hand towels for your hands. And hand towels, at least they look like hand towels to me, that are for the dishes. I must never use dish towels to dry my hands. Tracy has them set apart for a special purpose. They are, in a sense, holy. They've been set apart for a special purpose. In this case, God sets an entire nation apart for Himself. But holiness also carries with it that idea of moral purity, which is why God instituted all those purity laws in the Old Testament. His people were to be holy set apart from the surrounding nations for himself. And they were to be morally pure. So now, you now are that nation of which Israel was a shadow. The fourth and final high title is this. You are a people for God's own possession. It's true As the creator of all things, God is the rightful owner of all things. You are His possession in that sense, whether you believe in Him or not. But there's a special sense in which the church, you, are His own. Here's the title as it was given to Israel. Again, we're in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. There's a special sense in which the church is now God's own people. Paul picks up this thought in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, now what agreement does, has the temple of God with idols? That's what he's asking. For, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Paul is simply quoting Leviticus chapter 26. And like Peter, Paul also applies this title to the New Testament church. Listen to what he wrote to Titus. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own Possession, who are zealous for good works. So, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and you are a people for God's own possession. Those are the four magnificent, honorable, and humbling titles that you have as those who believe. Now, before we talk about how we came to be so privileged, let me make a brief application. Let's ask this. I'm afraid that sometimes we get so far into the trees that we simply can't see the forest, and it's difficult for us to see how Peter's letter applies to us today. Let's ask this. Why did Peter think it necessary to say this to these exiles? How would it help them in their suffering? How would it help them in the societal pressure that they were feeling? And by extension, how will it help you? Well, first, we need to understand that their status as chosen, royal, priestly, holy people was precisely why they were suffering. Christians living in the first century, pagan society, were alienated because they were different. Their worldview, their values, and their lifestyle were markedly different than their neighbors. It seems that first century Christians were known for rejecting many of the normal pleasures found within Roman society. Scholars point to the refusal of Christians to entertain themselves at the Roman theater or in races or in gladiatorial combat. It was also well-known that Christians were so dedicated to their one God that they were willing to break family ties for the sake of what they believed. Christians were even known for ruining businesses. Think of it. They caused a riot in the city of Ephesus because they, they were a threat to the silversmiths who made these little silver shrines to the god Artemis. If Christianity got out of hand, And spread too far, it would be an economic threat to certain businesses. So society tended to see Christians as antisocial. They were not always seen as good citizens of the empire. But Christians also refused to participate in pagan religious practices. And this may have been their most antisocial behavior, at least as it was viewed by their neighbors think about what it would say to your pagan neighbor when you refused to offer sacrifices to the gods. Think about the message that would send. The Roman gods were, they held the power of earthquakes, flood, fire, famine, fertility, and harvest. If you refused to honor them, it could negatively impact your neighbor. So if the river overflows its banks and destroys my home or a swarm of locusts destroy my crop, I'm going to blame you for not doing your part to appease the gods. That's something of the pressure that these exiles were under. Peter wants to encourage them. Take heart, he says. The honor is for you who believe. You are sons of the living God. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Society may well hate you, but you are a chosen people. You are loved by the king of the universe. You have a high calling as his sons and daughters. And that honor is worth being hated, and it is even worth losing your life for. You are in exile, he says. Never forget who, or better, whose you are. Well, it's easy to see how this applies to the church today. When we hold to the biblical definition of marriage and the God given roles of men and women, male and female, as they are given to us in God's word, when we refuse to go along with society's so called same sex marriage, when we refuse to celebrate moral confusion and gross depravity under the guise of pride, when we refuse to spin abortion as merely reproductive health care, we will be called haters. We will not be seen as good citizens in our society. We will be unloving, bigoted, transphobic, misogynistic, haters apparently we're not too far removed from first century christian exiles are we so never forget who you are there is an honor for you who believe that's peter's message to these exiles now calvin would have you consider that these four high titles are a contrast between you and the rest of mankind So that it appears more fully how incomparable is God's goodness towards you. For He sanctifies you who by nature are polluted. He chose you when He could find nothing in you but filth and vileness. He makes His peculiar possession from worthless things. He confers the honor of priesthood on the profane. He brings the vassals of Satan, of sin, and of death to the enjoyment of royal liberty. Now, how did you come into this honorable position? Peter gives three answers to that question. Verse 9, he says, Your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies. Now, we'll come back to that phrase. And try to figure out what it means to proclaim the excellencies of God. For now, though, look at the end of verse 9. The excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. How did you become chosen, royal, priestly, holy, and God's own? Answer number one, God called you. The Scriptures teach two kinds of callings. One is the general calling it is the call to all to come and to receive Christ. It is the call that extends to all people in all nations. And second, there's an effectual calling. It is only for those who God has chosen to save. It is the means by which God brings his chosen people to salvation. Two examples so you can see this for yourself in the scriptures. Look at Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know, you, most of you know this passage, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's not a general calling. It is specific to those who are loved, who love God. They are, they are the ones who are called according to God's purpose. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, 1 Corinthians 1. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That's the general calling, the indiscriminate preaching of Christ to all peoples. It is the scattering of seed. Verse 24, but to those who are called, that is to those who God effectually calls, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, God is calling you out of darkness into His marvelous light, and that is called His effectual calling. It is grace that you find irresistible. It is a shaft of divine light into a dark soul giving sight to the blind. The darkness here is not a lack of physical light. It is spiritual ignorance and blindness. You were blind, says Pastor Storms, to the beauty and the excellency of Jesus. But God has chosen you and delivered you so that you might experience a new sight, a new taste. God's shining of his light into the soul does not merely awaken us to the existence or the reality of spiritual things, of God, of Christ, and the Holy Spirit, it also shows us the excellency the glory, the beauty of such, and it imparts a new taste for what is marvelous about God. The darkness is the God of this world, Satan, blinding the the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Matthew Henry says these high titles are not natural to you. For your first estate is a state of horrid darkness. But you are effectually called out of darkness into a state of marvelous light and joy and pleasure and prosperity. Believers, at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk then as children of the light. So how did you come to be chosen? Royal, priestly, holy, in God's own. Answer one, God called you. And we'll take answers two and three together. Answer two, God made you his people. And answer three, God gave you mercy. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you recognize where Peter got that? That's right, he's quoting the prophet Hosea. This is the new covenant. I will betroth you to me forever. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people... You are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Don't miss the connection. To the unfaithful people that God had declared not a people, and to the people who had not received mercy, God poured out his love. He swore to betroth them to himself forever. You were the unfaithful bride. He is the faithful, loving bride. Husband. Paul uses the exact same image in Romans chapter nine. Let's take a look at it. Romans nine, verses twenty-two through twenty-six. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory. "...for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand, even us whom He has called." Catch that? Circle the word called. That's effectual calling. "...even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed He says in Hosea, "...those who are not My people, I will call My people." and her who is not beloved i will call beloved and in the very place where he it, it was said to them you are not my people there they will be called sons of the living god the story of gomer and hosea is the story of the church and is the story of every believer throughout all of history And it points to the gospel. A holy husband, an unfaithful bride, redeemed and made holy by the blood of Christ and taken to be his own forever. Or to use different language, a slave, a miserable slave purchased by the blood of Christ, freed from slavery to sin and death and made a holy possession of a new and loving master. Never, forget your high calling and never forget that your high calling is only because he called you he made you his own and he showed you mercy it is all of grace so let that humble you and encourage you and strengthen you throughout your time in exile let's bring this to a close by looking at the portion of verse 9 that we skipped earlier. These four honorable titles that belong to you as believers are for a purpose. Peter said, never forget who you are. Never forget how you came to be who you are, and never forget the reason you are who you are. Verse 9, you are all these things so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why did God choose you? Why did He make you a royal priest to the holy nation and a people for His own? So that you might proclaim His glory. Most of you know the answer to the first question of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is the chief and highest end of man? Answer? Answer? man's chief end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. Well, God bestowed upon you these high titles for one ultimate purpose, His glory. Calvin says that Peter here carefully points out the end or the purpose of your calling, that He might stimulate you to give the glory to God. And the sum of what he says is that God has favored us with these immense benefits and constantly manifest them that His glory by us might be made known. Your honorable position is a call to praise. It is a call to sing. It is a call to worship, and it is a call to evangelize. And it's even a call for world missions. This is what passionate followers of Jesus do. They recall the grace that God has lavished upon them, and they can't help themselves but proclaim it to the world around them. That's evangelism. Years ago, I was standing in line at a, at a bank waiting to see the teller, and there was an elderly woman in front of me at the counter, and I, and I watched as she pulled out her wallet and uh, slid pictures of her grandchildren out and began... <laughs> telling the teller about each of her grandkids. Um, The teller was polite. I was trying to be patient. (laughs) But then I realized this is a picture of evangelism. So often we freak out about the very idea of sharing our faith with someone. And yet here's this elderly woman. She could care less about the line behind her. She could care less if the teller really cared about it. But these were her grandkids, and she was going to tell her about what was dear to her, whether the teller liked it or not. That's evangelism. Brothers and sisters, you have been effectually called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. You were blind, but now you see. You have tasted the goodness of the Lord. You did nothing to earn it or to deserve it. You were no mercy. You were not a people. So your title to this honor of believing was pure grace. Tell the world about it. Proclaim the excellencies of your faithful, loving God. Proclaim His wisdom, His goodness, power, righteousness, and everything else. In which the glory of God shines forth. And further, this is Calvin, it behooves us to declare these excellencies not only by our tongue, but also by our whole life. This doctrine ought to be the subject of daily meditation and it ought to be continually remembered by us, that all God's blessings with which He favors us are intended for this end, that His glory might be proclaimed. That's Calvin's way of saying, preach the gospel to yourself every day and then proclaim it to the world. Proclaim the unsearchable riches of God in Christ. Especially proclaim His mercy. His perfect obedience, His bloody execution on the cross, His resurrection and His ascension into glory brought light to those who were in darkness. That's your high calling, brothers and sisters, and that's your purpose. Never forget who you are. Never forget why you are who you are. And then declare God's glory to the nations. O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Let's pray. Father, you have given us such a privileged position. And as, we, and as we look at how you brought us there, as we consider the gospel and your grace lavished upon us unfaithful, adulterous people, and yet you loved us You made us a people for yourself. You showed us mercy. Father, we want to proclaim that to the nations. Father, we want our neighbors to know this. We want our family members to know this. Father, give us courage. Give us courage to proclaim this message. And Father, may all that we do be done for your glory. And we give thanks to your name for all that you've done for us. Your mercy is marvelous. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.